Talking benefits. 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 Talking. Talking. Talking benefits. You're listening to Talking Benefits, the podcast brought to you by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans. Every month, we dive into retirement, healthcare, hot topics and trends, and whatever else the benefits industry throws at us. I'm Justin Held. I'm Julie Stick. I'm Ann Patterson. Let's talk benefits. Hello, everyone. We are back, and we will be diving into a new topic today, uh, apprenticeship training. Uh, This is a topic that is near and dear uh, to hearts of those at the foundation. Uh, A large portion of our membership is comprised of multi-employer plans, uh, where apprenticeship training is quite common, uh, especially in the skilled trades areas. There's some great lessons to be gleaned from their operation, uh, even if you're outside of this arena. Uh, So we decided to put together sort of a apprenticeship 101 to acquaint these plans with our listeners. Uh, So it is my pleasure to introduce an expert on the topic, Andy Staub. Andy is currently Counsel of Trust Legal Services at U.S. Bank. Andy has a long history of work with apprenticeship programs. He's spoken for the foundation on several topics in the apprenticeship world, including program administration, financial literacy, recruitment and retention, and much, much more. So welcome, Andy, and thank you for uh, spending some time with us today. Thanks, Justin and the listeners. I'm always a little uh, hesitant to accept the label expert, but uh, I'll take it in this one. We'll go. <laughs> it's true, though. It's true. <laughs> so some of our listeners may be unaware of the logistics of apprenticeship programs. So just starting off at the most basic level, what is a jointly managed apprenticeship program and how does it work? Well, when you hear the term jointly managed apprenticeship or joint apprenticeship, that's referring to the Taft-Hartley Act or the Labor Management uh, Cooperation Act. And what that means is it's it's run by a board of trustees that's composed of equal number of trustees appointed by a labor organization, a union, and from an employer association or management. And together, those trustees I think they form one of the highest forms of labor management cooperation, particularly in the apprenticeship trades, but they're funding a program that is geared to educate, uh, train uh, people how to be bricklayers, carpenters, electricians, and how those joint boards work. Uh, It varies all around the country. I'm, I'm referring specifically to the United States because it's different in Canada how it's set up. But uh, the jointly managed apprenticeship program is really a, a Taft-Hartley plan, just like a pension plan or a health plan. It just has a different benefit, which comes in the form of education. Mm-hmm. And so how are jointly managed apprenticeship programs governed in the United States? Okay, the governance comes from a legislation. It's called the 1937 Fitzgerald Act, also known as the National Apprenticeship Act. So it's it's a federal law. It applies to all of the United States, but it varies sometimes with each state because uh, under the National uh, Apprenticeship Act, there are uh, opportunities for states to set up their own apprenticeship, registered apprenticeship offices to coordinate with the United States Department of Labor. And the United States Department of Labor is essentially the leading regulatory body on apprenticeship, registered apprenticeship matters in the United States. If you go to the website for the United States Department of Labor, they have their own office within the United States Department of Labor called the Employment Training Administration. And D-O-L-E-A-T-A, DOLETA, is the link that will get you to that. And that's a tremendous resource for information on all registered apprenticeship 
matters in the United States. Great. So you had mentioned bricklayers earlier. What are some of the most common apprenticeable trades? Yeah, and I, and I want to talk about the, the distinction between a registered apprenticeship and a, an unregistered or non-registered apprenticeship. When, mm-hmm. when I talk about you know DOL regulation, they're talking about registered apprenticeship. And what you're talking about are trades sending in and applying for the stamp of approval from the United States Department of Labor. And in, in the registered apprenticeship trades, the largest ones you will probably see are in the construction trades. And when I talk about construction trades, I want to break it down to uh, licensed trades and unlicensed trades. A good example of licensed is electrical, uh, plumbing, carpentry. Uh, and then in the unlicensed, you'll see other ones like laborers or bricklayers. The largest programs that I've seen are, are coming out of the, the plumbing and the electrical and maybe even the operating engineer trades. Uh, but that some of the unlicensed trades, like the laborers, are also quite large in the construction areas. But outside of construction, you'll see some large training programs for firefighters or police or emergency medical technicians, healthcare workers. So it's hard to really, I mean, those are the largest ones. And if you go to the Dolita website, you'll see them listed. And there's quite an extensive list of what are called apprenticeable trades. Mm -hmm. Great. So we talked about sort of the program level and the trade level. Um, At the individual level, what does the typical apprentice look like? You know, if you had asked me that question before I started working with these, I would have just said, oh, the typical apprentice is a person who's fresh out of high school, probably their late teens, um, and they're ready to go to work. Uh, and, and when I started working uh, with the trades, particularly in my work as a training center co- uh, director for the Bricklayers and Allied Craft Workers of Minnesota and North Dakota, I realized that really wasn't the typical case. Um, I, I started seeing a large number of apprentices being in their mid to late 20s, having some life experience where maybe they tried college or maybe they tried something else. They went into the military, uh, and, but they came to go to the trades uh, as something that maybe it's, they saw the value in being a, 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 an apprentice and in, in learning a trade. Um, one thing that I can say that what is typical, particularly in the construction apprenticeship trades, is 94% of the construction apprentices are male. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if there's any form of typical, I would say right now we're seeing in the construction trades and the apprentice, the typical apprentice is male. Where we go from there as far as educational background, age, that varies, I think, depending on your locality and your specific trade. Nothing against males, but we need to make that more female and just make it a little more diverse. Absolutely. So the actual training itself uh, is primarily focused on the actual trade-specific instruction on the job training. What other topics uh, are commonly addressed in these apprenticeship programs? Yeah. So with a registered apprenticeship program, what you're you're doing is to get your seal of approval. You need to have two forms of instruction. One is the on-the-job training to which you already referred, which is the hands-on. You're working. You're earning a wage. You're working on the job elbow to elbow sometimes with journey workers. The other thing is classroom instruction, and that can come in many different forms, but there are a certain number of hours, minimum number of hours on the particular trade instruction. And that means you're coming into a classroom. You may have hands-on with tools, but you're learning a lot of things while sitting in a classroom 
or standing in a class bay working on things and you're not necessarily earning a wage. Um, that classroom opportunity has given apprenticeship programs the, the chance to teach other things or to bring other things to apprentices. And I, I know that we've seen examples of apprenticeship programs teaching things like uh, financial literacy, financial education, uh, or even uh, uh, working on partnering up with uh, community colleges to teach some of the liberal arts of reading, writing, and even going into some, some math training because that, that's necessary for succeeding in some of the classroom instruction. I think you don't want to make it so that you're expanding your classroom curriculum to the point where it's too many hours and you're overwhelming your apprentices. So there's that delicate fine balance as to how much more can you bring into your curriculum without overwhelming the particular apprentice and also trying to find instructors to teach those subjects. Right, right. Yeah, and we'll, and we'll get to some of those topics as well as some of those challenges sure. uh, later in the episode. So I think a large majority of our listeners may serve uh, corporate plans or may work in the public sector. Any aspects, any lessons from this arena that could be useful in that single employer setting? Yes, I think that there are still some very successful single employer examples of apprenticeship. I'm, I'm, I can't remember the name of the employer, but I believe it's, it's an aircraft manufacturer that actually has its own built-in apprenticeship school for people who are interested in working in various jobs for that particular carrier. And they, they go through an extensive, rigorous training. That's apprenticeship. In fact, I think when you think about apprenticeship, it can come in so many different forms. If you go to a restaurant and you, you see that, that uh, wait staff saying, well, I'm shadowing the waiter, um, that's a form of apprenticeship. And so I think in the, in the um, single employer, in the corporate world, we're seeing more and more apprenticeship. Maybe it's not registered apprenticeship, but it's apprenticeship nonetheless. I know in, in computer skills and, and technological training, we're seeing an awful lot of that. I know that in uh, medical services, they're doing a lot of healthcare training. That's a form of apprenticeship. I know that in the public sector that we're seeing firefighters and police that are, that are training their future firefighters and future police officers how to do the job. And that is a form of, of public sector work. And, and I think that that's really a good example. And, and I think registered programs can learn from them and vice versa. Absolutely. Fantastic. And the final question for you here, looking into trends that have shaped uh, apprenticeship programs over the past few years, trends that you've seen, any trends that you see going forward? Well, I think the largest trend is just embracing technology. And I'm going to just sort of focus on the construction, the registered construction trades. It's always a challenge. Uh, technology, increased technology requires money. And it's essentially trying to see if you can fund a way to make your apprenticeship training more accessible to apprentices uh, and easier to teach or more user-friendly for instructors and um, I can give examples of when I was the training center director for the bricklayers, getting a website established seemed like a Herculean task, but now it's kind of like, well, of course we need a website. And how you use the website really became a very important uh, question to answer. And, and, and I think we had to really make it interactive so that the apprentices can access 
their apprenticeship files and update their on-the-job training hours, whereas before it used to be you had to go in and talk to the training center office and turn in a paper record. And, and I think that making technology more useful in, in apprenticeship programs, particularly with logging hours or even uh, training. And I know that with the pandemic, I mean, we look at apprenticeship programs, we kind of have to look at them the same as we do schools, and, the, and they, they follow the same academic year, interestingly, that the, the September through May or June. And uh, when you look at the 2019-2020 school year, apprenticeship programs were just like high schools and colleges where when March 2020 came around, pure chaos hit. And so they had to make some decisions. You know, there was no in-class training and, and you certainly had to adapt on the fly. And that meant teaching apprenticeship classes online. And, you know, if you talk about some of these trades, it's it's impossible, but I think it's not really impossible. We're learning how to adapt. And I think at that, that second semester in 2020, we learned an awful lot of what we can do, not only in the apprenticeship world, but also just in the general corporate world. We learned we could do some things. So all of those things, I think, are on a pretty good parallel with respect to just watching what schools are doing. It's also affecting apprenticeships. And, and a good example of how a, a, an apprenticeship program adapted, I believe it was the International Union for the Plumbers, the UA. They had already put together an online curriculum that was there. Uh, that some UA local apprenticeship programs adopted for teaching. And, and I think that that's good to know that that's out there. Another example, this was even pre-pandemic. I, I worked uh, when I was at the training center uh, for the bricklayers. I worked with other crafts in helping put on a, a, a program called Construct Tomorrow. And that was for high school students that would come with their classes and be exposed to what it's like to be a bricklayer, a carpenter, uh, a painter, an electrician. And I was impressed with the other crafts that had sort of a virtual environment on how to paint a skyscraper or how to, to do electrical work. And, and I think that is something that is being picked up on. And fortunately, the, um, the federal regulations that talk about the, that are kind of hand in hand with the National Apprenticeship Act embrace, they, they're starting to embrace use of technological advances in instructing. And so you're seeing more and more online. It's always been a challenge for a lot of these apprenticeship programs, particularly in Minnesota, where the hub of activity, most of the population is in the, the Twin Cities metropolitan area of Minneapolis and St. Paul. But if you have a, an apprentice located in Thief River Falls or Worthington, does that mean they have to move to the Twin Cities where the training center is? So you're looking at how can you train apprentices remotely and how can you give them opportunity for hands-on learning uh, that you would otherwise have in your area. So this is not necessarily a pandemic reaction, but we're seeing it accelerated because of the pandemic. And I do believe like schools, universities, apprenticeship programs are adapting and they're learning how to adapt. Whether they're doing it successfully depends on the program, but it, they've been forced to adapt. So a different, different environment, but a lot of the same challenges as a standard educational system that we're all dealing with right now. So Exactly, exactly. And I, I do think that the use of social media is, is something that is a tool that I know apprenticeship programs have been using for recruiting or just for just general communication with the public. And, and how that is embraced, I think, is dependent on each apprenticeship program. But 
I think in a certain way that there, there still needs to be more pickup. I think that the corporate world might be ahead of mm -hmm. the joint apprenticeship world with respect to how to use uh, social media to your advantage. For sure. Well, Andy, we really appreciate your insights on this. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to take a deeper dive into some of those trends that we touched on, uh, looking sure. at some data from a uh, recent foundation survey. Great. As we've discussed throughout this episode, teaching apprentices how to manage their finances is a key part of many apprenticeship programs. If your program is interested in adding this education to your curriculum, or if you're struggling to find a qualified instructor, the foundation has you covered. The Financial Tools for the Trades online course is an engaging option for your apprentices. It includes four lessons covering setting financial goals, preparing a budget, managing debts, and using credit responsibly. This self-paced course offers fillable worksheets, full audio, and a final exam. And it's affordably priced with discounted rates for bulk orders. To learn more, visit ifebp.org slash tools for trades. We are back. And before the break, we discussed trends in apprenticeship programs with Andy Staub. Andy, you might know that I'm a little bit of a data nerd, and it just so happens that these trends are something that we attempt to capture in the foundation's biennial survey of apprenticeship training programs. So the 2022 edition of this survey brought up some interesting points that I'd love to quickly run through. Uh, so Andy, feel free to jump in at any time. I'm assuming that you've seen real world examples of these trends and issues, so we'd love to hear your insights throughout. So as I said, this edition of the survey represents responses from 172 apprenticeship programs across the U.S. and Canada, and it examines a wide variety of topics. So for the 2022 edition, we started the survey by looking at some challenges at the program level. And the most prevalent challenges facing these programs seem to fall into three larger categories. The first being communication difficulties. Programs in the U.S. face difficulties in communicating the value of the trades. Over half of programs struggle to convey the benefits to external stakeholders, and almost three quarters find it difficult to convey uh, the benefits to prospective apprentices themselves. Uh, Andy, is this something that you see in your world? Yes, indeed. Uh, I, I think the challenge when I see, you know, communicating the benefit of apprenticeship to external stakeholders and prospective applicants, I think of two things. Let's first talk about the external stakeholders. I think the biggest challenge is identifying who the external stakeholders are. And, and maybe it's, it's too daunting to, to identify. So then what you need to do is pick some, pick one. And one that I, when I was training center director, I picked high school guidance counselors mm -hmm. as an external stakeholder that was worthy of getting, I wanted to bend their ear. And the reason I wanted to bend their ear was because there were, there were a lot of high school guidance counselors who made it a point of trying to boost the numbers of high school graduates enrolling in university programs. And it was almost as if it was a badge of honor to have everybody in your high school graduating class mm -hmm go to university. But what we know already is not everybody is ready for college or should go to college. We know that for a fact. I can think of a great success story of a, of a very good friend of mine, went to a private school in St. Paul, graduated with honors, I believe, at the high school, went uh, one semester to college, and he hated it. He hated it. Went to um, apprenticeship program, uh, became uh, a, a, a worker, a journey worker, then became the 
the apprenticeship coordinator, ended up becoming the union president, chairman of the, the pension and the health funds. I believe that is a good example of how we can at least send the message to high school guidance counselors that it isn't just university. It's other things. It's going into the trades. So that was an external stakeholder that I really wanted to identify. Now, the next one is the prospective applicant. And I figured, you know, if I was going to be bending the year of high school guidance counselors, I should try to see if I could touch on the experiences of high school students or seniors. Um, and when you're talking to high school students, I think it's also important to talk to parents or guardians to talk about the benefits uh, I say, you know, there, you could go to college, it might cost money, it might mean you need to take loans out, but let's take a look at this option. Being an apprentice, a registered apprenticeship program could mean that you're immediately starting an hourly wage, you're, you're starting a pension, you're starting health coverage, mm -hmm. you're also getting education, it could be free education or it could be much less expensive, and you're not graduating from the registered apprenticeship program with a bundle of debt. And I think that was something that I was at least able to identify and to connect. It didn't always succeed, but I think that the challenge is for all of these apprenticeship programs is first identify who your external stakeholders are and identify who your prospective applicants are. And, and if you can't pick one and move on it and focus. Yeah. The, uh, the guidance counselors and the uh, parents themselves, sometimes they have their, their expectations of a four-year college that's been set into their mind for 10 plus years already. So the second sort of high-level program challenge that we found in the survey was actually filling that uh, future pipeline. About 30% of training programs reported that a shortage of potential candidates, as well as a lower quality of potential candidates. And almost half the programs say that finding qualified uh, instructors is a prevalent issue as well. Oh, I could comment on, you know, there's no such thing as not enough candidates. There's probably more question of, do you, are you paying enough? And I can give you a good example. I'm not going to cite the trade, but the uh, starting wage, the hourly wage for that particular apprentice trade beginner was $12.15. And uh, one of the union presidents came up to me and said, you know, my kid's working at the zoo for $15 an hour. Why would he want to start in this trade and get beat up on at $12 an hour? So I think that there might be an issue of how can you structure your your starting wage for an apprentice to make it a very attractive thing. Don't just say you're lucky to be in this pro pro apprenticeship program, take whatever wage you can get. I think I think we need to be very realistic of how much we're paying our workers, our starting workers, and that might help alleviate that quote shortage problem. And even with the instructors, I think the same thing could be true for the instructors. Are you, are you paying them? I think if you can pay them more, you might alleviate that concern of shortage. Absolutely. The third kind of final bigger picture challenge, which you already touched on a little bit, is external competition. Uh, and this is cited by about a fourth of programs. Um, programs are up against other business models and other education models. Uh, you mentioned four-year colleges, technical colleges. These are direct competitors when you're recruiting apprentice candidates. Well, I, I think we should talk about other external competitors like the non-union apprenticeship programs mm -hmm. or even other registered apprenticeship programs competing with each other. And, and it was unfortunate that I witnessed some of that where some registered apprenticeship programs were vying to take apprentices from other apprenticeship programs. And that was, that was kind of a sad thing to witness. Mm -hmm. I thought maybe if we could be more collaborative, let's say somebody doesn't want to 
continue on in a, in a licensed apprenticeship program. And maybe an unlicensed registered apprenticeship program can help pick that apprentice up and, and put them in a different program. But I know that there were some non-union apprenticeship programs that were out there trying to uh, recruit and say, well, you're getting a great training at this apprenticeship program. I can't wait for you to start and at $25 an hour wage uh, next week for this non-union employer. So we saw that a lot too. And the question was, you know, should the apprenticeship programs, the registered apprenticeship programs be training non-union workers? And and that's a big problem that I know that the, the apprenticeship programs have to face on a daily basis. That's a That's a challenge that we'll get into a little bit later. Programs also noted the prevalence of challenges at the individual apprentice level as well. Uh, a large majority said that child or elder care issues are either very or somewhat prevalent. Uh, and this is followed by decreased job security, um, injuries due to the nature of work. You mentioned that this is a pretty construction heavy uh, arena uh, and also unemployment due to the cyclical or seasonal nature of work. Apprentices also struggle with increased work hours due to reducing hires. Um, there's some language and communication barriers that were cited uh, as well as transportation issues. Does this sort of echo what you're hearing uh, in the real world? Yeah, I, and it's interesting, the whole decreased job security. When I started working with the bricklayers back in 2015, I was still seeing the ripple effect of how the 2008 recession had an impact on all registered apprenticeship programs where union membership went down, registered apprenticeship programs were just struggling to stay alive. And that was a really tough thing. And the fear, I believe, with the pandemic was, oh, here we go again. But that's not really the case. We didn't yeah. see that happening. So I think the decreased job security concern that we saw with 2008 just isn't repeating itself. The one thing I, I didn't know was really happening was the increased hours due to staffing shortages. And I think that's an interesting thing. But I, at the same time, you really kind of have to balance that out so that you're not hogging up an apprentice's time so that they can't do classroom training or things like that. And I do think that that's where labor and management need to come together. So you don't want to burn your apprentices out because there aren't enough people working. It goes back to my earlier comments and how do you, you know, address labor shortages the language barriers, I think, are interesting. And I want to just expand that to say there are cultural barriers. Mm -hmm. And we noticed that there were a lot of high number of Spanish-speaking folks coming into the Bricklayers program. And we had very little with respect to how do we address that issue. So, you know, trying to find uh, interpreters to, to help out some of these uh, apprentices. What we found were there were some journey workers that were willing to come in and help who spoke mm -hmm. Spanish and, and helped on the job and even in the classroom as well. I know of an apprenticeship program that I worked with that hired a, a Native American instructor because he knew that he could find a good pipeline of potential apprentices coming off of the reservation to do work. And I think that was something that the apprenticeship programs, they, they welcomed with open arms. And I think it's incumbent upon these joint apprenticeship uh, boards of trustees to be very welcoming of these diverse backgrounds. I learned something in the, in the bricklaying trades when I was working that a lot of workers, uh, immigrants coming from Eastern Europe, I want to say from Bosnia and Serbia, there were very skilled stone cutters. And so mm -hmm. that to have them there, there was kind of a group of, of these folks speaking their language amongst themselves. And I thought that was kind of a cool opportunity for folks who may not have been exposed to that, to see that and actually be applied to a skilled trade. Another area of challenges that we looked at in the survey was recruitment and retention. 
uh, and some of the issues that are significant in those areas. And, and we've actually touched on both of these already. The stigma attached with skilled trades work and also apprenticeship poaching, which you had mentioned. Uh, this is an, an area in which outside organizations recruit apprentices away from the organization in which they started or even completed their education. Yeah, I, I want to say on the, the apprenticeship poaching, uh, one of the things that we worked with in, in a couple of my clients when I was in private practice what we call the scholarship loan agreement program. Mm -hmm. And what that really does is it quantifies the expense of education and it mm -hmm. tells apprentices, Hey, it costs $9,000 a year for you to work here, but here's the deal. If you work in the profession for an employer who's signatory to the collective bargaining agreement or otherwise contributing to the apprenticeship program, we will forgive that indebtedness mm -hmm. and if you go outside of that compass of working in the, uh, for a collectively bargained employer or for an employer who contributes to the apprenticeship fund, then you've triggered the payment obligation. And that has been served as a very good deterrent for people to leave when they know that they have now a, a price tag on that poaching situation. With respect to, I, I can't remember what the first part of that one was, Justin. Uh, the, the stigma that's associated with I think messaging is really important and it isn't, you know, if you leave it just to the apprenticeship programs, the apprenticeship boards to, to deliver the message, it's going to fall short because of the stigma that may be attached to just organized labor sometimes in the general public. I think that elected officials or community leaders or even, you know, university leaders, educational leaders should step up and talk about the values of working in the organized trades because these buildings aren't being put up by themselves. These stadiums aren't being built by themselves. And I think that that's really important to acknowledge. And I, and I think that we could do a better job as a general community of lifting that stigma and showing that there is value in this profession. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So we went over all those challenges. How are programs overcoming these challenges? One of them is in their, in their recruitment strategy, something that you had also mentioned, programs are making some efforts to target specific population groups. Over 80% of programs target groups like military members or veterans, women, people of color. You also mentioned um, indigenous populations, uh, ex-offenders, uh, immigrants, uh, the list goes on and on. I know that there are uh, programs, for example, Helmets to Hard Hats, yep. which works with military veterans to come in and work. And I, th I think that has had uh, various degrees of success and one that should continue to be explored as an opportunity to get folks to do that. And I know that apprenticeship programs, particularly in the construction trades, need to do a better job of messaging to women. A good example of that is three years ago for the International Foundation's annual conference, I was moderating a session that featured a day in the life of an apprentice. I had two apprentices sitting up and I was interviewing them for in front of an audience. And one of the questions I asked both of the apprentices was, do you have sisters? They both of them said they did have sisters. And I said, would you recommend to them to join in your apprenticeship program? And both of them said no. And I asked them why. And they said that the prevailing attitude is very sexist and they didn't want to subject their sisters to that. I thought, okay, we need to work on that. And of course that, that engendered about a half hour's worth of dialogue amongst the audience members. And we heard some programs that were doing a women's only day with respect to recruitment. That way mm -hmm. women didn't feel like they were being, I guess, trampled on by the other male recruits that were there. And it was you know, basically a good opportunity to say, here is a very non-threatening way to expose this to you. Um, 
I think with the ex-offenders, I can cite specifically the Minnesota Correctional Facility in St. Cloud, Minnesota, has had, may currently have uh, a masonry shop in the prison to help train um, prisoners, but mostly it's um, nonviolent offenders, uh, to, to train them so that once they are released from prison, they're able to go either right into the apprenticeship program or maybe right into the field. And I thought that that was a very good example of how to help set up some success inside of a penitentiary. Absolutely. So touching on the classroom portion of training that we had mentioned earlier, um, survey respondents say that their programs lean pretty heavily on life skills training. Uh, And these life skills extend beyond those job-related duties. And they're focused more on the personal development of apprentices. Um, So things like personal safety, uh, work and job site behavior, uh, math skills, which you have mentioned, and also employability skills. And this can include anything from wearing the proper attire, Uh, making sure you have adequate transportation, uh, making sure you're on time. These are some typical areas of focus um, amongst our survey respondents. I go back to a question that when I was the training center director at the Bricklers, one of the trustees looked across the table at me and says, can we do a class on teaching apprentices how to be an adult? (laughs) And I I thought, okay, I just like (laughs) developing that curriculum, but I think there's a lot to be said about that. And one of the things that I found to be Uh, an object of passion for me was teaching folks in high school and maybe even beyond high school on financial literacy. You know, one example that I would do is I would take out a debit card and a credit card and I say, can you tell me the difference? I did this with my teenage daughters and first they couldn't tell the difference. And I said, well, the debit card is money you have. The credit card is money you don't have. And anytime you use the credit card, it's kind of like invading a foreign country. You have to have an exit strategy before you (laughs) use it. And if you're going to use the credit card, you better have a plan on how to pay for it. And that just, you know, basically learn how to do credit. And, and And I think that that's a very important thing to touch upon as far as a life skill. And I know that the Western Alberta Boilermakers even incorporated financial literacy as part of their classroom curriculum. It's done online, but you have to go through a series of courses and tests to to be a graduate of the apprenticeship program. And I think that that's a very important thing for life skills. I think safety training, absolutely. Employability training is very helpful. I think that you can focus on what are maybe, what are some of the things that you recognize as a leader in your apprenticeship program that you're seeing that your apprentices need work on? Maybe that's talking to the employers who have the OJT employees or talking to the instructors as to what, how is the behavior going on in class? And I know one of the challenges we faced an awful lot was just classroom attendance. And I think part of the Minnesota standards was if you miss four classes, you're automatically kicked out. And that seemed like kind of a harsh rule, but you kind of had to do it because that was the state's uh, standard mandate. But it also meant you lost a lot of apprentices because they just couldn't make it to class or there was something that interfered with their ability to be a meaningful participant in the class. And this is going to kind of lead me on to something that I that is something that was near and dear to me as apprentices were coming to the classroom. Uh, a good example, the, the tile setters and the tile finishers would often end their workday at 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. But apprenticeship classes didn't start till 5 or 5.30. What would happen is a lot of these tile setters and, and tile helpers 
would spend that gap period at a bar and they would either drink a lot or whatever. And then we would have this concern about intoxicated apprentices coming into the classroom and they're going to be working with equipment and, and you know, no high school or college is going to let kids or students come in drunk or intoxicated and operate equipment or just be there. And so we were faced with that challenge. How do we address that? And, and I know that there's an experimentation of drug testing, not on the job, not only on the job, but even at the classroom level of Mm. drug testing. And I think that's still in the infant stages. We're working on that, but I think it's definitely a concern that apprenticeship coordinators, instructors, and and trustees are, are facing. So the next topic that we addressed uh, in the actual survey itself was partnerships. Apprenticeship programs collaborate extensively with uh, a number of external partners to uh, provide education, job assistance, um, recruitment and outreach opportunities, uh, articulation agreements, and also even the use of facilities, funding opportunities, the list goes on and on. So according to our survey, responding programs are the most likely to collaborate with labor organizations, which we've mentioned extensively, construction contractors, high schools and school boards, uh, community-based organizations, technical and community colleges, as well as pre-apprenticeship programs. I think that one of the partnership opportunities that I worked very hard to work on was the community colleges in the area, Mm -hmm. because I think when we were trying to um, recruit potential uh, apprentices from like the high school graduate level, uh, parents were expressing concern that, uh, well, they weren't going to get the um, liberal arts training and learning how to write or how to put a paragraph together. And I was trying to reach out to um, community college uh, leaders to say, how is it that we can work together so that I can send some of my apprentices over for maybe a writing course? or a reading course, or maybe even a language course. And I think that that's good. That's good community relations. I also found that in Minnesota, I had two different governmental partnerships. I really made a point of introducing myself to the, the Department of Labor and Industry Apprenticeship Director in Minnesota. Plus, I tried to reach out to the Minnesota Department of Education. After all, an apprenticeship program is a school. And it's the Department of Education and the Department of Labor and Industry that I think I need to work together with to, to see if I can come up with ways uh, to, to get ideas from them on how to promote the program to a larger population. I mentioned the uh, ETA, the Department of Labor ETA website. One of the things that's very important with that is I saw that there were plenty of funding opportunities for grants program Mm -hmm. grants and you find you might find by applying for these grants you may not know that you were going to be a partner with these particular grant makers but there are opportunities for grants and and for partnerships that you can find even in that website i think uh, working with labor organizations and employer associations absolutely that that's that's low-hanging fruit for a a joint apprenticeship program Um, but i think reaching out to your governmental partners reaching out to your educational partners and then maybe tapping the resources available under the uh, DOL ETA website. So the final topic that we are going to touch on today is the issue of um, apprentices in the world of mental health. About three quarters of U.S. programs reported that alcohol addiction and abuse is either very or somewhat prevalent uh, among their apprentices. Respondents also reported prescription and non-prescription drug addiction, uh, substance use disorders in those larger proportions. Well, I think it isn't just apprentices. I think it's journey workers and even retirees where these Mm. issues are prevalent. And 
Um, it was a couple of years ago, one of the keynote opening session speakers for the annual conference for the International Foundation was Dr. Drew Pinsky. I know he's a he's a TV doctor, then you might he might get a lot of criticism for that. But he delivered a very powerful presentation on mental health, particularly substance abuse and depression and how it affected construction workers and the high rates of suicide and, and the danger that comes with uh, being an intoxicated worker on the job site. And I think that labor organizations, employer associations can work together. Even apprenticeship boards can work on keeping the message there on mental health in general. And, and it's been particularly challenging, I think, in the last two years with the pandemic all that that people are, are self-medicating as a way to deal with a lot of the struggles and things like that. And it's really important that we tap into the resources that are available. And one of the things that we learned with mental health was telehealth, which kind of was sitting on the back shelf for a lot of health programs, really sort of accelerated in availability and effectiveness, particularly in the mental health area. And I think it would behoove labor organizations and employer associations and apprenticeship funds to access those available resources for telehealth, for mental health. I think the destigmatization of mental health is crucial. And I, I applaud the International Foundation for taking this issue very seriously in the forefront and should continue to do so to, to pass the message on that it's not okay that once you're done as uh, with your day as a tile setter to go straight to the bar between um, work at the end of work day and the start of your class day, because it does lead to a high rate of alcoholism and substance abuse and mental health. And I think we should all work together to, to address that issue. And, and it's there. We can do that. And that was something we found in all of our membership sectors, sort of taking away the mental health stigma, but also the increased utilization of telehealth benefits, uh, a, a benefit that's been out there for a while, but uh, historically low uh, utilization rates. So hopefully uh, that's one of the uh, silver linings of the uh, pandemic. So we looked at the specific mental health conditions, but we also looked at the impact that these conditions have on apprentice performance specifically. These issues cause absenteeism, tardiness. Uh, this was reported by 89% of programs. Nearly nine in 10 said that um, these disorders are either very uh, or somewhat impactful on overall job performance itself. And this is followed by apprentice morale, physical health, and presenteeism, which is the inability to focus on work or your productivity. Uh, is this something that you've seen as well? Yeah, I do think that one of the reasons we were facing an absenteeism issue with some of our uh, apprentices and coming to the classroom was, was the mental health issue or just the I mean, physical health that may come from that or the, the notion of presenteeism. I thought that that's a very important um, topic. I think that's definitely going to have an impact on um on the job site and in the classroom. And I know that construction for uh, men and for women are basically looking at the workforce. And if they look like they're going to be a danger on the job site, they're going to be excused and let And that's going to have a definite impact. So we talked about the impact. We talked about the conditions. Let's get into what programs are actually doing to combat these conditions and reduce their impact. For the most part, these strategies are more commonly offered at the sponsoring union or employer level. Um, but they're also often addressed at the individual apprenticeship program level as well. Um, so all responding programs provide apprentices with uh, referrals to community services uh, with either their union employer or training program, while the majority of programs have support groups specifically on site. 
Also at the union employer level, access to online resources and tools is the most uh, frequently offered benefit in the area of education and awareness. And that's followed by posting information in paper format online, uh, but also supervisor training, uh, as well as newsletters for apprentices specifically. There's a lot to tackle on that, but I think one of the things you'll hear from leaders in joint apprenticeship funds, and particularly the boards of trustees, they're going to look at, at expense. How much is this going to cost? And I mentioned earlier the apprenticeship programs that we're going to consider doing drug testing at the job, at the um, training center, at the school, the classroom. And that entails some expense. And there is pushback with respect to that. So there's always the expense question. But apprenticeship programs that have them available should, should make it the path of least resistance by providing tools, by providing assistance. And that way, you're making it more attractive. And that's part of, I think it's all hand in hand with your recruitment and retention is to provide such benefits. And if it means helping out by providing tools or providing other life lesson or life guidance uh, training, that should be there and it is well worth the expense. Absolutely. The final category is aimed at preventing these mental health issues before they occur. About three in four programs uh, have a employee assistance program available to workers uh, at the union or, or employer level, but also some pretty substantial proportions uh, offer that coverage at the individual uh, training program as well. And a majority of programs also include a mental health component with some of their wellness initiatives at the union or employer level. And this is followed by uh, mental health assessments uh, that are included with part of the general health risk assessment of a apprentice or journey worker. I, I think that that's something that the apprenticeship programs can really pick up on because we're seeing the, you know, the labor unions and the employers working on it in their particular locales. But I think apprenticeship programs have the ability to sort of blend those to come together and have their own wellness initiatives, even if it means having uh, a um, a couple of bays or places for people to go for a telehealth visit or something like mm -hmm. that. I think that's that's a nice opportunity for apprenticeship programs to capitalize on, or at least help the apprentices get to meaningful telehealth uh, offerings that may be either at the employer or at the union level. So that is going to do it for our survey results, as well as this month's episode. If you'd like to read the full survey results, they can be found at the new Foundation Research Landing page at ifebp.org research. We'll also put that link in the show notes of this episode as well. If you're looking for more information on apprenticeship programs, uh, the Foundation has a variety of resources for those who are um, involved in these programs. Check out our Apprenticeship Resources webpage at ifebp.org slash apprenticeship resources for updated news stories, as well as links to articles, papers, research, and links to external resources and training opportunities. Andy mentioned that DOL ETA page. That's one of the first links that's listed there because it's so useful, as he said. Our apprenticeship program answer guide is also on that webpage. Probably our most valuable apprenticeship resource uh, contains over 100 questions and answers on a variety of apprenticeship topics, including legal considerations, uh, logistics of setting up a program, instructor quality initiatives, recruitment and retention, much, much more. Uh, and Andy uh, was actually one of the primary authors on that resource, uh, so uh, make sure to check that out. Andy, we really appreciate your insights on this, and we want to thank you for taking the time to chat with us today. Well, I want to thank the International Foundation for these opportunities and for taking apprenticeship seriously. I think in the last 10 plus years, they've really 
upped their efforts to bring it to the forefront so that uh, we could take apprenticeships seriously because it really does represent the future of the trades. And always listeners, thank you for pushing play. We love our listeners, just like Jennifer Gunter. Jennifer reached out to us to let us know that she loves the podcast. Uh, We'd love to hear from you as well. Drop us a line uh, and maybe even tell us what topics you'd like to cover in the future. Email us at podcast at ifebp.org. Who knows? Maybe you'll get a listener shout out and some love on the pod squad, just like Jennifer. Thanks a lot. If you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find the podcast. And subscribe to the show in your podcast app so that our episodes will automatically appear on your mobile device. Talking Benefits is a production of the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans, the largest educational association for those working in the benefits industry. If you're into benefits, check out all that the International Foundation has to offer at ifebp.org. Our show is hosted by Julie Stick, Ann Patterson, and me, Justin Held. Produced by Rose Pleva and Stacey Van Alstein, and edited by Amanda Gilsmer. Today's program is copyrighted in 2022 by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans. All rights reserved. The opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and not to be used as legal counsel. Apprenticeship resources, apprenticeship resources, apprenticeship resources. Say it really fast, Justin. That's a that's a mouthful. Well, anything else from me? No, thank you. I we uh, I didn't expect it to be that long of an episode, but it, there's you had a lot of a lot of fantastic insights. So we just kept. You know, this is baloney. You ask a lawyer an open-ended question, and you didn't expect a long answer. <laughs> that's my fault, I guess. I I hope we have outtakes too.